Ladies and gentlemen, people of the internet, welcome back to yet another episode of Crypto Over Coffee. I hope you're doing well today. And if you're new here, every Saturday, we start off the weekend right by breaking down the latest news and the hottest topics in the world of technology and cryptocurrency over a cup of delicious coffee. That being said, in today's episode, I'm going to tell you what you need to know about this Bitcoin double spend news, the engine news that everyone's been talking about, our usual 404 Logic Not Found segment, and more. So make sure you stick around for all the updates in today's episode. But as we always do, let's kick it off with questions from you, the awesome folks who watch my channel, before we get into all the news. If you want one of your questions answered, of course, leave them in the comments below, tweet me at Hashoshi4, or leave them in the Hashoshi Discord. And if you would be so inclined, please do subscribe to the channel, hit the little bell notification button, so you can get a heads up whenever I post new content here on the channel or on the podcast platform of your choosing. So let's go ahead and dive into these questions. Now, the first question is from Jacob Testuide. I hope I pronounced your name right. I'm sorry if I didn't. Are the Ledger Nanos still the best hardware wallets right now in your opinion? Now, this is a complicated question because I have stopped recommending Ledgers to people largely because of their data breach and the handling of that data breach, which I thought was extremely poor. And it's going to take a while for Ledger, the company, to earn my trust. That being said, if you need a hardware wallet, you really want a hardware wallet, and you think that the Ledger Nano X, for example, has the great coin support, or you you can't afford something else, you want to get the Ledger Nano S, I'm not going to tell you not to, because the hardware is, is fine, and the hardware is unaffected by the mistakes they've made in terms of their data breaches. But my point is, is that I think, for me, I want to make sure that they... I understand that customers need to have trust in them as a company to purchase their products. And I don't want to just ignore that fact and recommend the products anyway, consistently because of that. So again, I think what I'm saying is, is it's up to you whether or not you want to uh, cast aside the issues that they had with that data breach and still buy their hardware because the hardware is just fine. And I still like it and I still have a Nano X that I use. But I will say there are tons of other options out there if you're looking for them. The Trezor Model T is fantastic. Uh, for a cheaper option, the SafePal S1 is a pretty reasonable wallet for what you get. Uh, I think there's a lot of options, so make sure you do your shopping and figure out what it is that fits best for you and the coin support that you need. Thanks so much for your question. The second question on the books today is from JHG. Can you discuss the graph, GRT? Love your show. Thanks so much. Um, This is actually kind of a two-part question, so I'll split it into two. Uh, The graph, I think this project is actually one that up until recently was actually fairly underrated. Not many people knew it. After GRT got listed on Coinbase, of course, people started to learn about it. It went crazy in terms of price, and it pumped way up. Um, But largely, I think the graph is fantastic because it takes a really traditional, and I can't even say traditional, a really useful database query protocol in GraphQL, which is really what Facebook used to make mobile Facebook usable. It basically prevents the issue of overfetching where you have to go and request an entire document or a bunch of documents to parse through on the front end. It just makes everything more scalable in terms of querying. It makes things um, less compute intensive on the front end side, so on the user or client device side. So it's fantastic. And they basically applied this uh, this concept 
that they wanted to create a global API layer for blockchain-based data because traditionally it's very hard when you're storing data in a smart contract, for example, which you shouldn't really be using a smart contract as a database, but data does reside there anyway. They wanted to be able to query that extremely quickly and efficiently. And so you see uh, companies like Uniswap, for example, using uh, the technology that the graph is purveying to fill these lists, right, which are lists of coin support, which gives you the, you know, the image, the uh, contract address, the supply, etc., of that given ERC-20 contract, right? Those sorts of things are very effective. And I think the graph is doing something smart by trying to create sort of like a data economy where you can host an API if your data is useful and it helps people. You can earn and you can grow your reputation and that sort of thing. So the graph protocol is a really cool, cool, cool thing. It's not a gimmick. I think they really do have a useful product. And that's why they're getting the attention that they're getting. They're not the only game in town, though. There are some other folks doing similar things. But of course, GRT, definitely one to take a look at, definitely one to, uh, to learn about from a tech perspective. And if you're a developer, maybe tinker around with it. And then the second part of this question is, can you put your past YouTube episodes on Apple Podcasts? I'm working on getting Crypto Over Coffee episodes from the past up on this podcast platform. I want to know in the comments, though, if folks are interested, should I spend that time putting these episodes up? Um, would you listen to some of the old episodes if they pop up on the podcast platform? Just let me know in the comments below. Thank you so much for your question, JHG. And the third question of the day is from Kevron Creates. Great video. Thank you. What is your opinion on password managers? Is it a good option for people who have trouble keeping track of things or should everyone make sure to have good records offline? Now, Password managers, I think, are a fantastic thing, like a YubiKey. I think I have one in here somewhere amongst my things. I always have uh, you know, my, my YubiKey rolling around with me with my computer. But like a YubiKey, I think a password manager is an indispensable tool. I've used uh, Keeper, which is a great password manager in the past. I use Dashlane a lot now. Uh, they have great compatibility, and their web application that they just released is fire. I love it. Um, and so I would say a password manager is something everyone, everyone should have. And ultimately, I think what it means for, for you, if you have, I don't know, dozens and dozens of online accounts, which most people do, is that you probably are reusing passwords. You're probably using the same password or very slight permutations of the same password across your different sites, which is a security problem because if one of those passwords is breached in something like the ledger data breach, for example, now hackers that know your email and password combination can try a bunch of other sites and likely get into those sites because they have the one password. So the goal is you want to have a really strong passphrase, which is a little different than a password. I'll explain that in a second uh, for each individual site. But then people say, I can't remember all that stuff. And then that causes people to do other bad things like writing their passwords in their phone, in their contacts, or writing them out in their notepad, which syncs to the cloud, or is just not secure in general. That's even more of an issue. So the way that password managers get around this is they say, create one really, really strong master password or, or you know, king password. Once you have that, that is going to be used along with some other magic in the background for, with cryptography to encrypt all of your other passwords, all the other passwords. And oftentimes, password managers will also auto-generate really secure passwords for you and save them for you automatically. So it takes the guesswork out. Those passwords then propagate across all your devices. 
and it uses a zero knowledge model, which basically means that without that pass phrase to unlock the master content within your, uh, within your application, it's all ciphertext. So even though that your, your passwords technically are stored in the cloud, they're stored as ciphertext and they can only be decrypted and used with your master passphrase. That's the key behind the security. It's oversimplified the way I explained it, but generally you get the idea. And that means that you can safely and securely delegate the responsibility of remembering every password to this manager, but you can remember one really solid password. And the way that I go about this is I create uh, phrases. And so I said passphrase versus password. People think of password like uh, puppy123 or the name of their dog, 567. And people come up with those because they're easy to remember. But I think passphrases are easy to remember and very secure. So you can take a common sentence or phrase or something that you say like, uh, that's whack, bro. That's something that I say sometimes. I would take that as a passphrase because I'll remember that. I'll remember that sentence, but I'll change the A to an at, or I'll change the O to a zero. And then I'll go in and I'll add special characters at the beginning and the end. And that's a passphrase. And largely, they're not English words anymore because I've changed, changed the password around internally. And then from there, it's really, really simple to remember, but very, very, very secure. And that's, of course, just an example. You can take any variety of different examples and, and you know, pick a 32 character password, you'll find it's a lot easier to remember if it's a, a sentence structure. Um, so that, that's my advice there. Get a password manager, use a passphrase to secure it, use that to store your passwords, and don't keep copies on your phone or, or anything like that in, in that's, that aren't in, encrypted at least. And I think uh, that'll be enough. So hopefully that answers your question. I know there's a lot there, uh, but that's just my philosophy. So with that, let's uh, jump over to the news section. Now, I know there was only a few questions, but I knew that this last one would be a little long-winded. So let's dive into those. Now, just a friendly reminder, please be aware of scammers in the comments that are posing as me. If the comment does not have the name highlighted, and you'll see that here on the screen, it isn't me. And most comments I comment on, I also give a heart, which only I can do. So please report anyone who seems sketchy giving you their phone number, for example. And also for those of you who are new here every week in partnership with the folks at Kobo, they make the awesome Kobo Vault Wallet. I'm giving away a Kobo tablet steel seed phrase backup device in every episode from here on out. So all you have to do to enter the random draw is to comment on this video. That's all you have to do. And I pick a winner each week by random draw. So just for transparency though, the product is only available in select regions. So if you win and you're from a region that isn't supported, I'm just gonna send you some Bitcoin instead, which I think is a pretty good prize anyway. So the winner of last week's giveaway for the Kobo is here on the screen by random draw. So a big congratulations to you. And of course, I will be in touch. Now, this is the story that everyone's been waiting for, right? That people have been asking me basically for the last two days, what's going on with this Bitcoin news and the, the news about a double spend. So this week, the internet and news media on Thursday caught a blaze with a story about Bitcoin suffering a double spend attack, which is by classical definition, the one that everyone fears, basically where new coins are effectively added to the supply by allowing two confirmed transactions of the same Bitcoin to live on the chain. Now, this is a problem the Bitcoin network and other blockchains after it were designed and tailor-made to prevent. So it makes sense that people panicked and caused a huge sell-off to the tune of 10% of the market value or more and broke us below 30K for the first time in 2021. So why did this much panic occur? Well, 
Because the main reason Bitcoin is celebrated is because of its fixed supply and decentralized validation in contrast to the fiat currency world that we all live in. And if double spend happens and can happen, then the supply could be malleable and the network could be compromised. And so that really understandably struck fear into a lot of people. However, I'm here to tell you that that fear is unfounded. In fact, this event is a clear indication that we are far, far away from Bitcoin adoption at large because so few people actually understand how this stuff actually works. And that's evident too in news outlets like Cointelegraph who really, I don't think, did a great job expressing how this actually went down. So let me make this abundantly clear. Bitcoin did not suffer a double spend attack in the sense that its integrity is broken. It worked as designed. End of story. But let me explain why. At block 666833, two mining pools proposed a block more or less at the same time, which presented a classical blockchain scenario where one block would need to be carried and the other would be orphaned or stale with a reorg. This is the process by which the canonical chain of blocks, or the single chain of blocks, organizes around one single longer chain that is accepted as the truth. Traditionally, according to the rules, miners switch to the longest chain in these cases, or the one with the most accumulated proof-of-work difficulty input. And this is how Bitcoin in and of itself handles temporary forks, where two miners propose blocks semi-simultaneously, and it happens a fair number of times. It just so happened that in this particular chain of events with a reorg, a Bitcoin user's transactions created a perfect storm for what looked like a double spend and really actually wasn't. The user had sent a minimum fee transaction on January 18th, and after a day had passed without confirmation in a block, they realized that they needed to pay more fees to speed up the transaction. So they created a new transaction with higher fees to spend the same Bitcoin and broadcast it to the network. In fact, the user submitted two separate new transactions with higher fees to try and push that transaction through. This is what is called a replace by fee or RBF transaction, which assumes that the high fee transaction that you send after will get validated and included in a block before the low fee transaction that gets stuck, which will then render the low fee transaction null and void when it's plucked from the mempool and checked for validity, of course, because those Bitcoins have already been spent. In the case of this particular situation that has been called a double spend now, the RBF transaction with the higher fees did not get validated first. Instead, the low fee transaction made it into a miner's block beforehand. Now, the second RBF transaction with the highest fees, so higher than that first RBF, I know it gets confusing, it also got picked up by a miner for a block. So at this juncture, you have two transactions present in blocks that directly affect the same inputs. This is, however, not double spend in the traditional sense. The Bitcoin network has always depended on block depth-based confirmations for transactions. You've probably seen this if you use an exchange. In the Bitcoin paper, six confirmations are mentioned as a rule of thumb. In other words, to ensure a transaction is in fact valid and will not be reorged out of the chain, you need to wait for six new blocks to be minted where the transaction in question is still valid. This is why you have to wait for confirmations on exchanges before you can send or move crypto. They want to make sure that the transaction you sent as a deposit doesn't get invalidated through normal blockchain reorganization if you withdraw, which would leave them empty-handed. No crypto, no cash, or no other crypto. What happened here is that while two transactions that operated on more or less the same Bitcoin inputs and by the same user did in fact get placed into blocks, only one of those transactions is in fact accepted long-term as valid. The other one 
has been cast aside in sort of an orphan chain that will never be valid, and you can't spend those coins. So as the natural process of the blockchain organizing around one single canonical chain of blocks continued during this process, the duplicated transactions, if you will, were invalidated in stale or losing blocks. And as a result, while this was all unfolding, there were in fact multiple transactions that presented themselves as a double spend. But because of the six confirmation rule, those transactions were not both valid at that time in the immediacy of when they were put into blocks. After the confirmations passed, as the smoke cleared, we were left with a totally harmless and unnewsworthy event that will likely happen again and again and again and has happened before. You have some invalidated transactions. I mean, wow, it's so horrifying to think about. Sarcastically, of course. Bitcoin operated like it was supposed to. And this is an example of a Bitcoin user using the variety of features or options available to clear a stuck transaction, which just so happened to coincide with a normal temporary split and reorg of the Bitcoin blockchain. So this created this perfect storm where a double spend like transaction could occur but the end result is not that new supply is created and the integrity of Bitcoin is gone. I know it's scary and I know the headlines in the media would like to imply that this is a flaw when in fact this is the exact way the Bitcoin network has always worked and it did exactly what it was supposed to do. So let me repeat. The headlines are misleading because it seems like 80% of media outlets don't actually understand how Bitcoin works and they're searching for a high impact story. This was a classic case of reorg and transaction invalidation and the new coins that were created cannot be spent, therefore they are not in supply. Furthermore, an example of this whereby millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin could be attempted to be double spent would require significant minor involvement, which was not present in this example, so it's not a traditional case of double spend. So in summary, a Bitcoin user submitted three or four transactions with largely the same inputs. A reorg occurred in the midst of this, which created an instance where it looked like double spend. Then the natural process worked itself out and it invalidated those inherently conflicting transactions and as such, no new supply was created and thus there is no story here to worry about. So don't worry and take everything you read with a grain of salt. Now, I did want to tell you about a really cool service that I just started using actually in the Bitcoin world called iTrust Capital. They offer a fully IRS compliant cryptocurrency and precious metal IRA or individual retirement account here in the USA where users can trade crypto in an environment where crypto gains can be either tax deferred or tax free depending on your qualification, traditional or Roth IRAs respectively. So this means that you can trade and invest in crypto actively inside the context of a retirement account where you don't immediately accrue capital gains. And of course, that's an advantage in some cases. Uh, you can contribute 6,000 annually to these accounts if you're under 50 years old, and you can contribute 7,000 if you're over 50, I believe. And this is a great opportunity for US-based folks to invest in cryptocurrency in the form of a retirement account and benefit from the tax rules for IRAs for these sort of long holds, things like Bitcoin. I've been personally seeking out ways to diversify my own long-term investments in retirement savings because I don't want all my exposure to be in stocks for retirement. So I'm going to max out my contribution to iTrust Capital this year as an IRA. I'm going to start building my crypto and metals retirement accounts because I just think it's probably a good move for me. Now, if you're interested in doing the same thing, please do check out my link in the description below. You can sign up on their website and see if it's something that you're into. Of course, zero pressure either way. Now, in other news, Dan Larimer, the famous CTO and largely the creator of EOS, announced that he's stepping away from the organization to pursue other projects. 
course, this was not received all that well in the EOS community, as Larimer has long been viewed as sort of the lifeblood and the, I guess, figurehead or brains of the organization. Even though, to be honest with you, Block One, the organization he left, has done a pretty good job of separating itself from the EOS protocol, but that's a separate story. The price of EOS took a hit in the wake of this news, of course, as a result, a really big hit, and many have even expressed anger with Larimer for abandoning the project. However, I would like to present an alternative viewpoint. If one is building a decentralized network and a protocol that is to be governed by the community, then why do you need a leader to make decisions and lead the pack? Why would you be angry if they left? And the answer is you shouldn't be. I think Larimer is doing just fine here. He's not doing He's not doing anything wrong, and by removing himself, it's likely that his heavyweight opinion in the ecosystem will begin to fade, and the project can continue to evolve and grow naturally. Now, there's a lot of work to be done for EOS to fix up some of the weaker aspects of the protocol, and there's no question that it needs work. But they don't need Dan Larimer to do that. Whatever he works on next will inevitably get a lot of fanfare and attention, and it will likely be impactful, as most of his projects have been throughout the past. But EOS fans should not worry about any of this, even for one moment about his departure. This is a decentralized party after all, and EOS will be just fine with or without Dan Larimer. The path should be, let's build and grow and evolve this protocol and make it better. In the world of blockchain gaming though, and of course non-fungible tokens, which are arguably my favorite niche in the crypto space, it was a great week for Engine, the blockchain gaming juggernaut. The price of the native ENJ token shot up nearly double upon the news that it was approved by the stringent regulatory mechanism dubbed JVCEA in Japan, and it's being listed on one of the leading exchanges in the country, CoinCheck. Now, Japan is traditionally a huge gaming market. That is no secret, both from a consumer perspective, but also from a studio perspective, gaming studio perspective. Some of the most impactful games of our lifetime, and for someone who was born in the 90s like me, things that are on the Nintendo platform, you know, you got those GameCube games, the N64 games, those were amazing. Those are managed, if not solely, by Japanese studios. So this is a hotbed for this type of tech. And what this means specifically for Engine is that they can begin to sow the seeds of relationships and adoption in Japan before any of their competitors who are not fully regulated and approved. So to me, that's a big advantage. They have this first mover advantage in a big market. The process of approval was reported to have taken about a year, which is a heavy investment that will hopefully pay off for Engine and their investors like myself. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for 404 Logic Not Found. And for those of you who are as of yet uninitiated in this little firecracker of a segment, I highlight notable tech-related fails or otherwise stupid moves in the world that need to get some attention. And speaking of attention, if you want to help this video get some attention or this podcast get some attention, please do get subscribed, follow, hit the like button if it's available, and it tells those robots that control all the content stuff that you're liking what you're listening to, what you're watching, and other people might do the same. So thanks for that in advance. Now, today's absence of logic is brought to you by a totally fake Confucius proverb that I totally just now made up on the spot, and that is, the blind bull runs off the cliff. And when I attempt to decode this again, totally made up proverb, I can only point to the fact that during times of bull market euphoria in crypto, like we've had for the last several months, it seems that many forget that prices can also go down, and they can also go down just as fast as they went up. And this largely nonsensical double spend story that we talked about earlier in the episode 
is proof that markets are still volatile and those with poor cash management practices or risk management practices can get caught in the chop. The blind bull refers to the person who is so bullish on price movement that they go all in and they never imagine or acknowledge prices going back down. Eventually, they run off the cliff, blind to this fact. And when prices tank in epic proportions and they need to get their money out, they're just in free fall. And this is a story that has been told so many times, but it seems that people never learn. And I can promise you this, the best way to sleep like a baby at night, and what changed my life in crypto, to be honest, even when we have big $10,000 red candles on some bad news or FUD like we just had, I just never overextend myself, even in a bull market. Even if I miss out on some profits, I sleep like a baby because I'm not worried about the short-term chop. All too often, investors get hung up on the promise and the marketing of the crypto world, thinking the bull market is linear and it follows a steady growth curve up and only up. But when you become blinded by that narrative, you often lose in the end. Focus not only on the upside, but the downside. Think to yourself, if 10% get shaved off the top today, am I going to be okay to hang in there? Do I need cash now? Am I overexposed? Am I diversified enough? These are critical questions. And if you're not asking these questions, you need to be asking these questions. If you're not asking these questions, 404, logic not found. There are also rumors now that the large crypto institution Grayscale is going to create trusts like they have with Bitcoin and Ether with other cryptocurrencies like Link, Basic Attention Token, and others. Now, these rumors came out of filings that were reportedly made with Delaware's Division of Corporations, which named Grayscale and a handful of altcoin trusts. But at this point, these are fueled by pure speculation as to whether Grayscale is actually behind these things or if it's someone else. So despite the name of the filing, take it with a grain of salt. But what would be significant is if Grayscale is in fact expanding its offering. As much of the growth in the crypto market right now is being driven by institutional investors this time around. And should that trend continue to expand into altcoins, that would be extremely significant. And so I want to watch for institutions moving into things like Chainlink, moving into things like uh, Basic Attention Token or Cardano ADA and other projects. It'll be very interesting to see. Now, folks, that's going to do it for Crypto Over Coffee today. But if you have time to stick around, please do check out my latest 2021 altcoin picks. Let me know what you think. I'll link the video up here on the screen. Or if you're on the podcast platform, I'll leave the link in the description. As always, thanks so much for watching and listening. And I wish you and your family a great weekend. And until next time, cheers. Cheers.